I was so getting into singing that I almost forgot how to preach. I was like, whoa, okay, back in the real time here. So this is our last sermon in our series, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, on the topic of race, ethnicity, and mission. We began the series in the book of Revelation. We'll end the series in the book of Revelation. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read today's text. Starting actually at Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 22. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would simply come and you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. I pray that you would use your gospel this morning to make it effective unto the sanctification of those who hear and the salvation of those who hear as well. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I told you, this is number 14, I believe, in our series on race and ethnicity and mission. We began with the book of Revelation. We end with the book of Revelation. And so it seemed appropriate that the first question I would ask you is, do you remember from 2013, when I preached this before, the purpose of the book of Revelation? Like, it must be important if we're beginning a series and we're ending a series with it. And I know many of you, you smart children, (laughs) want to raise your hands and say, Jesus wins, right? The purpose of the book of the Revelation is to remind us that Jesus wins, but it's more than that. It's to remind us that Jesus has won in the past, that Jesus will win in the future, and in fact, Jesus is winning right now. The whole book is about that. It's to point us toward that. Some people, when they look at the book of Revelation, they read it only with an eye to the future, right? In other words, they look at the events in Revelation and they say, all that stuff is going to happen someday in in the future. Some people look at the book of Revelation and they say, wow, all that stuff already happened. It just, it's done. It's just history. And of course, some people read the book of Revelation. And they say, oh, this is all happening right now. <laughs> Afghanistan, Kabul, everything that's happening. It's in chapter 13 of Revelation. All of those views are deficient. Why are they deficient? Because if your view of Revelation, if you read Revelation, you say all this stuff is only going to happen in the future, then you might have some hope for the future, but you have very little joy right now. 
you might have hope that, well, in the future, things are going to get better. It's not always going to be like this, but right now, I guess I'll just have to gut it out. And interestingly enough, if your view of Revelation is that all this stuff already happened, it puts you in the same place. That you say, well, I, I, I've hoped that someday this is all going to be over, but right now, between the fact that it's happened and the fact that the, Jesus is going to come back, I, just, I guess I'll just gut it out. There's no really hope for the present. And of course, if you read it as it's all happening right now, then you probably just live in a state of constant anxiety. The issue is, the way that we read the book of Revelation, I think the appropriate way to read the book of Revelation is through the lens of now and not yet. That, that, that a lot of things in the book of Revelation are going to happen. Some of the things in the book of Revelation have happened, and some things affect our lives right now. And, and the reason for that is the reason John wrote the book of Revelation was to comfort people. And if you want to comfort people, you don't send them a calculus book. <laughs> you, don't, you don't send them like a, a, a mystery book. Like, you know, here's, here's some Sudoku. Hope you feel comfortable now, right? You don't do that. You send them something that they could identify with. And if you remember the people, the original people who received this letter were Roman citizens. They were under a corrupt government that was tyrannical, that was economically crooked. All the things that you hear complained about our government. And all the things that may in fact be true about our government. They were suspicious of it. And John says, here's how to have comfort in the midst of all this. And interestingly enough, the way that he ends the whole letter, right? Whenever you're reading the Bible, the last thing a person says, you ought to really pay attention to. And the way he ends the whole letter is about the nations coming in and bringing their glory in. So that must be important. So with all of that in mind, let me remind you, this is sort of a summary sermon in many ways too. Let me remind you why we did this series in the first place. The reason, we, the reason I did not do a series on race, ethnicity, and mission was to try and solve all the racial tension and problems in our country right now. I didn't say, you know what, I bet I'm such a good preacher that if I just preach a bunch of sermons on race, everything will get better in the United States of America. I didn't think that for one minute. I thought, what can I do? Well, what I can do is I can at least try and open my congregation's eyes to how important the topic is to God. I can open their eyes to how it, it weaves itself through all of Scripture. That my goal was that people would come up and say, wow, I never really, I never thought of that. I never knew that, that the whole issue of race and ethnicity and mission was woven all throughout the gospel. And you know what? People have said that to me over and over and over again. And so to that extent, I feel like we have been relatively successful here. And so as we continue on and we try to sort of finish this sermon series, basically the second goal before we do that was basically... So, so the first goal is that you would be like, wow. The second goal is that our church would look more inside like it does outside. Right? In other words, outside of our church, especially in the city of Kent, you see people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You see 138 languages in the schools. You see all of these kind of things. And inside the church, you don't see that as much. You see some of it, but not as much. And so the goal was that we would begin to look more and more like the city of God. We'll talk about that more later. And so... Basically, today I wanted to look at one of the last scenes, Revelation, and I just really wanted to look at two things today. I wanted to look at John's vision for the city of God, and I wanted to, to consider the residence of the city of God. Okay, I actually started, when I originally did this, I had three points, and if I did three points, it would be about 50 minutes long. So I thought, 
know, I love my congregation. I'm going to go out on a high note, so <laughs> I'll cut one of those points out, the middle one, <laughs> about the measurements of the city. It was a little wonky anyway. <laughs> at any rate, let's look first at the vision that John has of the city. In verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So there's basically three things that you see about this vision. And the first thing you got to notice is that it is a comparison. That from chapter 17 to chapter 20, John has been talking about another woman. So one woman is the bride of Christ. The woman that he has talked about from chapter 17 to chapter 20 is the harlot of Babylon, right? In other words, there are two cities that are being compared. One is the city of Babylon or the city of man, and one is the city of God or the bride. One is, one is the prostitute, one is a bride who is dressed and made ready for her husband. And so it's a comparison. And if you go back and read what the harlot is like, the harlot is like all of the things that we complain about in our country and in the world right now. The, the, the city of God, is, or the city of man, is, is all about violence. The city of man is all about uh, tyranny. The city of man is all about abuse and trauma. The city of man is where slaves are sold. None of that happens in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So first it's a comparison. John wants us to say, here's the one place where you live, and here's the place that God is creating. And the second part, of the, the thing we see here is that it's part of a pattern. That What do I mean by that? So basically the pattern is this. The pattern, if you read the book of Revelation, what you see in the book of Revelation is this pattern that happens over and over again where John hears one thing and then he turns around and looks and he sees something else. So remember John chapter 5, he says, I heard the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so if you heard a lion from the tribe of Judah and you looked, what would you expect to see? A lion. John says, I heard the lion, and I turned and looked, and I saw a lamb who was slain. So what that means is the lion and the lamb are synonymous. The, the, the lion is the lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb who was slain. The other comparisons that we see here is that in chapter 7, remember John, here's the full number of the people of God. What is the full number of the people that God is going to save? And John says, I heard 144,000. That doesn't sound like very much. That's not, that actually sounds pretty stingy. He said, I heard 144,000, and then I looked and I saw myriad upon myriad upon myriad. That's John's way of saying billions or millions or an infinite number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what is the full number of God? I don't know if we know exactly what it is, but it will be a lot. That God, in fact, is not stingy with salvation. That he extends it freely to all, to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that's part of the pattern. So this is also happening here. Did you notice how it opened? John said the, the angel came and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he hears, I'm going to see the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ. And he turns and he sees what? He says, I looked and I saw a city coming out of the sky, New Jerusalem. So he says, I heard that the bride was coming and I turned and it was actually a city. Now, what does that tell us about the city? Well, it, who is in the New Testament is the bride of Christ? 
The church is the bride of Christ. So that if, if we follow this logic, he says that the church equals the city of God equals us. We are the city of God. Remember I told you now and not yet. That when we read these things, someday there will come this great city of God where every wound will be healed and every tear will be wiped away. But the city of God is actually happening right now. The city of God is actually happening now and in our midst. The last song we sing today, you're all going to recognize it, but I hope you sing it with different eyes and a different voice this morning. The last song we sing this morning is City of God. And we don't say, God's going to build a city of God someday. And we're going to have to be happy when we get there. No, what does it say? It says, let us build the city of God. May our tears be turned into dancing. That because of the gospel, that's possible now. Someday it will be completely complete and completely uh, consummated, but it's actually possible now. And so if you have a city that is full of every people, tribe, tongue, and nation that are worshiping around the Lamb, someday that means it's actually possible now. That we should be experiencing it at some level even now. The last thing I want to point out about the city, which I think is my favorite part about the city, at least it is this time I preach it. It says in verse 12, it says, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates of 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, that part is one of those kind of parts that's easy to just sort of read over. And as I was looking at the text this time, I thought, that may be the most important part of this whole text. In some ways, at least for us, why is that? Well, let's turn to baseball for a minute to help us understand. You know, I think it was 2008. You remember Barry Bonds? He used to play for San Francisco Giants. In 2008, he broke Hank Aaron's all-time home run record. So Aaron held it forever, and it was 755 home runs. Barry Bonds hit 756, and you would think it would, there would just be unmitigated joy and unmitigated happiness and unmitigated celebration because of that, and that he would be a no-brainer to go into the Hall of Fame. Well, Barry Bonds, for the past nine years, you get ten tries, for the past nine years has been nominated to go into the Hall of Fame, and he has been not voted in every single time. Why? Well, it's because he hit the... the record-breaking home run under the cloud of using uh, performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, right? Hank Aaron did it without steroids. Barry Bonds did it with steroids. And so now the big tension is, should he be in the Hall of Fame? Should he be there or not? And there, you know, as you can imagine, people are very divided. Some people say he should never be in whatsoever. That, that should just completely disqualify him. Some people say he should just be in and we should not worry about it. He got the hits regardless. And other people like me are like, maybe we put him in, but we give him an asterisk. You put, his, you put him in the Hall of Fame, and by his name, there's an asterisk that says, he didn't deserve this. <laughs> or he cheated. Which, by the way, I could do a whole, a whole sermon on, I think Pete Rose ought to be in the Hall of Fame too. That's just my own opinion. <laughs> I don't want to spoil any uh, vibe we have going here. But the point of it is this. When you look at the names on the, on the gates of the city of God, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. How many of those guys deserve to be on the gates of the city of God? Judah? Mm-mm. Reuben? Nope. Simeon? Nope. 
Ephraim, Manasseh, no, 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 no. Twelve times, no. They should all have an asterisk. Maybe they do. Get up there, angel, what are all the asterisks for? We'll read the footnote. They don't deserve it. How about the apostles? The 12 apostles are on the foundation of the city of God. Their names are inscribed on the city of God. Do they deserve to be there? Peter? No. James, John, Thomas, we don't even know what six of them did. Do they deserve to be there? Absolutely not. Then why are they there? They are there for the same reason that you and I are in the book of life. They are there by grace. They are there not because of the work they did. They are there because of the work that the Lamb did. You see, because if you look at the end of this passage, you find he says, basically, the, the last verse says, Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, the city of God, nor does anyone do what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, in the Lamb's book of life, when it says Tommy Allen, I bet you know what? Asterix. He didn't deserve this. And you know what I think? I think the reason there's no asterisk in the Lamb's book of life and no asterisk on the foundation is because when everyone has an asterisk, why use it? No one deserves to be there except Jesus. And he has graciously given himself so that we might be there with him and dwell with him. That's big. So if you think about that, John doesn't tell us every gate or Basically, the, the fact that the names are imperfect, the patriarchs, apostles, and everything, that means there's actually hope for us. A lot of people think, man, I'm just so, like, I've committed so many sins, I'm so, I'm so dirty, I've done these kinds of things, is there really hope for me? Yes. If the apostles are on the foundation of the city of God, there's hope for you to be in the book inside. Now, as you continue and look at this city, I'm not going to look at the measurements because it does get a little wonky. The only thing I'll point out to you about the city is that we see that it's, it's a perfect square. It's a perfect square, just like the Holy of Holies was, because that's where God dwells in the Holy of Holies. Except here, we are there with him. That the whole, the the push of the whole Bible is not just every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but as we sung earlier, is that God would actually dwell with them. God would dwell with us. So as we move from that, let's look at the residents of the city real quickly. Verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So who are the first two residents that are named in the city? The first two residents named in the city are God and the Lamb. Right? So it says about God... He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. So one thing that I pointed out to you, almost every time that I have an opportunity, is that for those, those of us who are waiting for a physical temple to be built again in Jerusalem and for sacrifices to begin to sort of hasten in the end times, if that's who you are, you're, I, I don't know how to say this nicely, I think it's a waste of time. Because what what you've seen throughout the whole Bible is the fact that God is intended to dwell with his people. 
and that you go from, from having a, a tabernacle to having a temple to having us who are being built into this temple where God dwells in us by His Spirit to the end of all time when God is just there. He doesn't need a temple because He is the temple. He is the very presence of His people. And one thing we know about the city of God, why is it light all the time? Remember from John's perspective in the ancient Near East, darkness was a time of insecurity. Even in the biggest city, even in Rome, when it, they didn't have electricity, so as soon as the sun went down, Things got dark, and that's when all the bad stuff happened. And John says here, this city never gets dark. God is light. And not only is God its light, but the Lamb is its lamp. And if you're a thinking person, you're thinking, why do we need, a, if God is, lights the city, why does Jesus need to be a lamp? What's the purpose of a lamp? Well, in the ancient Near East, with the time of this writing, the purpose of a lamp is because if you were traveling in the dark, in the middle of the desert, or in the middle of the wilderness, your only salvation, oftentimes, was a lamp that a city would shine at night. Sort of like we have lighthouses. They would have a lamp that would shine from the city gate so that you could just simply, where, where we need to go, Judy, I don't know, <laughs> follow the lamp, right? And so you just head toward the lamp, that the lamp draws people in. And remember what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 12? He said that when I, Jesus, am lifted up, I will draw all peoples unto myself. That the reason that, that you'd need a lamp in the city of God is because Jesus uses that Jesus lamp to draw people in to the city of God. That he will draw people in and he is drawing people in to the city of God right now. And specifically, who is he drawing in? It says that he draws the nations of the earth. He says, by its light, that's the light of this lamp, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day. And it says, 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So on one hand, what does that mean? Because if you look at the Old Testament, in Isaiah, there's a passage very similar to this. It says the nations will come in, and they will bring their wealth, which makes sense. Here, it says they will bring their glory. And so there's basically two ways to read this. One is that they're bringing their glory in order to submit it. In other words, that the nations have, a, have some amount of glory, but they're coming into the city of God where there's such a greater glory that they're actually bringing their glory in to just give it up to God. So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is this. The nations have glory. The nations have glory and honor. In other words, their nations are not despicable. The nations are not a necessary evil. That the nations have something distinctive about them that God sees as glorious. And every nation has that. You see, one of the reasons racism is not just a sin, but it's foolish, is because what we learn from the Bible is that every nation has some distinctiveness, some glory that they bring into the city of God that other nations don't bring in. That there is some glory that, that Africans bring in, that, that Scottish don't bring in, and there's some, something that Scottish bring in that English certainly don't bring in. I'm sorry. I mean, I hate saying true things and then, you know, have to take it after. But you get my point, is that every nation has something. Every nation has some gift. Every nation has some glory and some honor without which heaven would be incomplete. And get this, I think even, I was just thinking about it this morning, they not only bring into it, bring into their glory, but the, or that their glory is not only this distinctiveness, but I think their glory is also all the injustice they've experienced, all of the harm, all of the trauma, and it is redeemed injustice, and it is redeemed trauma. It, it, is, it is all this stuff, because did you notice the way this chapter opened? 
It says when they get there, when we get there, he will wipe away every tear. It doesn't say there aren't any tears. It says there will be tears in heaven. And when you get there, when I get there, when the nations get there, God will wipe them away. And as he wipes them away and redeems all of the stuff that we have been through, then there will be joy. Then there will be hope. Then there will be peace forever. And the last thing is basically this, the, to say a word about diversity. You know, when I was... I. It seems like all the way back to when I was in college, we started getting hammered. I start, felt like I started getting hammered with posters everywhere that said, celebrate diversity. And I remember thinking back then, like, if you're not already into celebrating diversity, is that poster really going to push you over the edge? I don't think so. And, and, and as, I've, as I've grown older, I think the, the word diversity is one of those words that has been hijacked from the church. In other words, pastors and, and, and teachers almost hate talking about diversity because you're going to get an email that says, oh, you're be, being woke now, or oh, you're doing this now, or oh, you're doing this now. But if you just think about it, the church ought to be the most diverse place in the world. And it ought to be the place where diversity is celebrated. It ought to be the place where we, where we can actually, instead of being afraid of the differences that we have between each other, we can actually celebrate the differences that we have between each other. Because in the context of all these differences, remember, all of us, regardless of whether you're black, white, or Asian, or anything else, we are all being built into one new person. One new thing that bears witness to the world that the city of God is different than the city of man. I'll close with this. You know, Judy and I moved to Seattle in 1996, I believe. And the denomination we were with asked us to plant a church in the center of Seattle, and we did. We planted a church in Capitol Hill, and we came out, and we just thought, okay, man, we're going to this diverse city, and we're going to go to the center of the city, and it's going to be the most diverse, wild church in the world. And you know what? Capitol Hill in Seattle, it might be the least diverse place I've ever seen in my life. Everyone's got money. Everyone's rich. Everyone's white, practically. I mean, it's just not. It's pretty vanilla. Okay, you had some, we had some goth people with piercings that were pretty gross, but no, other than that, it wasn't particularly diverse. Then we left the ministry, and we moved here, and some, somehow I ended up being the pastor here. And you know what's interesting? Is when, when we were coming out to Seattle, I had this vision that God wanted me to start a church that was in the middle of this just diverse place, and it would just be this crazy, diverse city of God that we would make this city look more and more like the city of God. And I went to Seattle, and I said, dang, this isn't it, I guess. I'm a drug rep. And God, it seems like, was like, no, 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 no. Over here. Look over here. In Kent, we have 60%. I mean, white people are the minority in Kent now. You know that? 138 languages in the school district. And you know what? There are actually churches of, of different nationalities all over the place that we don't ever talk to hardly. A lot of the reason we haven't done it up to this point is because we've been so busy fighting within ourselves. And I think we're at a place now where our church can begin to realize this vision that God would make the city of Kent, it would make our church look more and more like the city of God where the nations are coming in and where the nations are coming in and they're not just coming in to bring their distinctiveness but they're coming in and they're experiencing healing that's what comes next we don't have time to talk about that in the book of revelation it says when the nations come in the leaves of the tree of life come down and are healing for the nations because there's healing that has to take place in the church what better place would there be for it than here think about that let me pray for us father
I do pray that you would um, just open our eyes to what you want to do here in Kent and Renton and the Pacific Northwest, what you want to do in our particular church, what you want to do in, in each, any given particular individual. I pray for the congregation even as I uh, take time off for a few months that you would guard them from the work of the evil one and that you would work great grace in them. In Christ's name, amen.